0: Choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
1: You've got speed, John Glenn. Roger, Zero G, and I feel fine. I Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light
2: Hello and welcome. This is Michael and You're listening to episode 286 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 13. I want my power-up checklist. Now. This is Apollo
1: Control, 119 hours, 17 minutes, ground elapsed time. Spacecraft position 112,224 nautical miles out from Earth velocity continuing to build up now 5,478 feet per second. Looking now at entry interface time of 142 hours 40 minutes 42 seconds which uh, according to the countdown clock is some 23 hours 22 minutes from now. Got a uh, mid-course correction burn of uh, something less than two feet per second, which may or may not be done uh, some 18 hours, 22 minutes from now, uh, which is entry minus five hours.
2: By Thursday afternoon, Chuck Dieterich had received clearance from his fellow Retros, Fidos, and Guidos for the procedure to safely jettison the dead service module and the live lunar module when the time came to position for re-entry. This is how it would be done. Jim Lovell and Fred Hayes would stay in the lunar module while Jack Swigert would enter the command module. Moments before separation, Lovell would fire the limb's thrusters for a single pulse pushing the whole spacecraft stack forward. Swigert would then press the button that fired the service module's pyrotechnic bolts, cutting the huge broken portion of the ship loose. As he did, Lovell would light his thrusters again, this time in the opposite direction, backing the limb and its attached command module with Swaggered aboard away from the drifting service module. The procedure for jettisoning the limb was easier. Before a lunar module was released on a normal mission, the astronauts would close the hatch in both the lander and the command module, sealing off the tunnel from the cockpits of either ship. The commander would then open a vent in the tunnel, bleeding its atmosphere into space and lowering its pressure to a near vacuum. This would allow the twin vehicles to separate without an eruption of air blowing them uncontrollably apart. During the flight of Apollo 10, the controllers had experimented with the idea of leaving the tunnel partially pressurized so that when the clamps that held the vehicles together were released, the limb would pop free of the mothership, but in a slower, more controlled way than it would if the passageway between the two spaceships was fully pressurized. This method the controllers figured, would come in handy if a service module ever lost its thrusters. Now, a year later, a service module had done just that, and the flight dynamics officers were glad they had the maneuver tucked away in the contingency flight plans book. On Wednesday, the procedure had been explained to Jack Lausma, and the CAPCOM had proudly related up to Lovell, who was a little skeptical. Now, In mid-afternoon on Thursday, Dietrich had one more new procedure to clear with his fellow FIDOs, GUIDOs, and RETROS. This one concerned Apollo 13's guidance systems. Before the command module could re-enter the atmosphere, its guidance system would have to be reactivated and then, with the aid of telescope sighting of the sun and the moon, realigned. The job could be painstaking and would probably be made all the more painstaking by the condensation that was now moving into the spacecraft's optics. Nevertheless, Dietrich and the other flight dynamics officers felt confident the crew could pull it off without too much difficulty. To make sure that they did, the reentry alignment once established would have to be checked. The customary method for doing this required the command module pilot to watch the horizon of the Earth as it moved across his window. If the alignment of the ship was true, the arc of the planet would cross specific hash marks etched on the window frame at specific times. As long as the planet moved as planned, the computer could control the re-entry. If it didn't, the crew would know that the guidance platform was somehow skewed and the man in the commander's seat might have to take over the re-entry, manually steering the spacecraft to splashdown. The problem on Apollo 13 was, just before re-entry, there wouldn't be any horizon to take a sighting on. With the hurry-up route the spacecraft was following home, Odyssey would wind up approaching the Earth from its nighttime side, meaning there would be nothing below in the critical moments before re-entry but a dim mass where the planet ought to be. Therefore, the moon had to be used. The plan was, at the exact second the moon set behind the Earth from the viewpoint of the spacecraft, the command module pilot would notify mission control. If the moon disappeared at the correct time, then entry attitude would be on the mark. But, as usual, there was a problem. It had been more than a day since the crew of Apollo 13 had been able to see out the windows of their command module. Since Monday, of course, the view from the lunar module had been somewhat obstructed, what with the astronaut's constant respiration introducing moisture into the air and the spacecraft's low temperature causing condensation to form on the two triangular windows that were supposed to provide a clear line of sight in space. Now, on Thursday, as Apollo 13 began its final evening in space, the temperature in the command module had dropped lower than it had been the entire trip, and the water, in even its considerably drier air, had at last made itself visible. Every window, wall, and instrument panel in the clammy cockpit had become covered with pearl-sized beads of water. If the windows and walls and the front of the instrument panel were so well soaked, it was a safe bet that the back of the instrument panel, where the spacecraft's wires, bulbs, and solder joints lived, was too. Engineers at North American Rockwell had waterproofed every one of the millions of electrical connections that ran through the ship, but the protective sealant was sufficient only to guard against moisture in humid cabin air. Nobody had ever thought it would be necessary to seal the electronics against free-running water. When the ship was turned on tomorrow and the power once again began to flow through its instruments, there was a very real chance that a single raw wire or porous seal could blow the whole system right back out. As if there were not enough problems, Houston still had not completed the command module power-up checklist. Ever since Lovell and Hayes had finished carrying their 100 pounds of gear to simulate the weight of moon rocks from the lunar module to the command module, Lovell had been prodding Houston for the whereabouts of the list John Aaron and Arnie Aldrich had been working on for so long. The read-up they knew could take hours, with Swigert having to copy down every step in longhand and read them back to make sure he got them right. And that was assuming no glitches or gremlins were found in the list. If a problem cropped up and Aldrich and Aaron had to return to room 210, who knew how much longer things could take? The first time Lovell asked Capcom how the checklist was coming, Jack Lausma responded jokingly, that it would be ready by Saturday or Sunday. Of course, Splashdown was scheduled for Friday. The next time Lovell asked about it was about 24 hours before Splashdown. Joe Kerwin responded evasively.
1: And uh so just a reminder, now that you mentioned that it 24 hours to go,
0: uh, what I like to do, and I'll have a board, I'll procedure that you work it up, so uh, I can run through them with the crew and me. you that, Jim. We are uh, trying to uh, get the procedures uh, finished and up to you as quickly as we can. Uh, They exist. What's going on now is that uh, the guys are uh, running them in the uh, CMS-LMS integrated uh, to make darn sure that the attitudes are correct and the uh, uh, timeline is uh, nice and relaxed and all that good stuff. They won't be finished that run for another few hours. However, uh, we expect to have an overall uh, uh, timeline and a and sequence of events for you uh, before that time, and we'll start with the procedures as soon as they get ready. Over.
2: Okay, thank you, Now, at 6.30 on Thursday, 18 hours before splashdown, Lovell had had enough. He called CAPCOM with another reminder that he needed the checklist. And this time CAPCOM responded,
0: We just about have uh, procedures in hand, detailed checklist type procedures to send up to you. In other words, a timeline with reference to uh, entry checklist and any changes in the entry checklist. So, if you have a few pages of scratch paper, why? I think we'll have that to you within an hour.
2: Lovell had serious doubts that Vance Brand would have the checklist in an hour, but as it turned out, his estimate was fairly close. Almost as soon as Lovell clicked off the line, the doors opened at the back of Mission Control and Aaron, Aldrich, and Gene Krantz appeared. Aaron was carrying a thick sheaf of papers. It was evident from the protective way he held it against his body and the flying wedge Aldrich and Krantz formed on either side of him that he was carrying the power-up checklist. The three men walked down two tiers of consoles, stopped at the Capcom station, and huddled briefly with Vance Brand. Aaron handed Brand what appeared to be one copy of the checklist, turned to Krantz and handed him another, then turned to Aldrich and handed him a third. The fourth and final he kept for himself. Brand turned happily around to face the console and contacted Apollo 13.
0: And we're ready to read you the first checklist installment. This will, uh, what we're going to read up is going to be a LEM timeline, a CSM timeline, and checklist changes to conform with these. And right now I have the first installment of the CSM timeline, ready to read up. Okay, okay Jack, I'm going
1: to get, uh, uh, Randall, I'm going to get Jack on the line for that, and he'll stand by.
0: Okay, and he'll need a lot of paper.
2: In the spacecraft, Swigert got a pen and paper, adjusted his earpiece and microphone, and prepared to sign on the air. In Houston, as Bran waited for Swigert, more people suddenly converged on the CAPCOM station. From the flight director's console came Jerry Griffin and Glenn Lunny, the gold and black team flight directors. From the ECOM station came Cy Libregat.
0: Okay, Jack. Uh, wait one, we want to get one into the hands of uh, flight and ECOM, and uh, it'll take about a minute or two. Uh, I'm sorry to wake you up for this, but. Uh, take about a minute, and then we'll read it up to you.
2: John Aaron picked up the telephone at the Capcom station to call out to get extra copies made, and a full two minutes of silence elapsed on the loop as the men at the Capcom console paced. The crew in the spacecraft waited, and the crowd in mission control glanced periodically at the back door, waiting for the copies to arrive. Krantz, looking impatient, mimed a keep-talking gesture to Brand.
0: Hey, Jack, do you have any of that CM water, bagged water, left? Over. Uh,
1: Negative. I went up and tried to uh, repressurize the surge tank and uh, get another shot of water. I was able to repressurize the surge tank, okay, but uh, there
0: was no water that came out of the water gun. Yeah, we understand that that, that there isn't any more in the potable tank, but we understood that you had put some water from that tank into bags, and I wondered if any of the bags were left. All right, thank you. Okay.
2: As Brand searched his mind for some other conversational gambit, the back door of Mission Control burst open. Expecting to see an engineer rushing in with a stack of stapled flight plans, The men at the Capcom consoles groaned when instead, half a dozen flight controllers, all from the white team, Tiger team, headed for the communications station. Like Krantz, Aaron, and Aldridge, all of these men would want to be present when their masterpiece was read up to the ship, and all of them would want their own copies of the mimeograph sheets.
1: Okay, Ben, we're ready to go.
0: Okay, we we lost you there uh, briefly while you were in an attitude where we couldn't uh, receive you. Uh, Jack, we'd like to hold off uh, for about five minutes. We have some more people coming in to listen to this. And uh, it took a lot of people to devise this procedure and uh, a few people have been testing it out, so we'd like to have them all on hand while we give you the rest.
1: Okay.
2: All at once, on the air-ground loop, a new voice broke in. It belonged to Deke Slayton, and Vance Brand welcomed it. As an astronaut, albeit an astronaut who had not flown yet, Brand recognized the well-now-mutinous tone coming down from the spacecraft, and he knew he had only so much authority with this crew, as the chief astronaut, albeit a chief astronaut who had never flown. Slayton would have a good deal more.
0: How's the temperature up there, Jack? You guys chopping wood to keep warm? Uh I
1: think it's about uh, 51, I think, or 50 in the uh, lamb, and it's about, uh, I don't know, 45 or, or a little bit less in the command module. It's oh, a nice fall day, huh? Yeah, I tell you, we don't have to worry about chill
2: down. Slayton's presence on the loop brought about just the change in Swigert's demeanor that the chief astronaut had hoped it would. But the first-time astronaut was only the second-in-command aboard Apollo 13. First-in-command was Lovell, a veteran of three other spaceflights, and he was less easily placated by the voice of Deke Slayton.
0: Fans, so we got to realize that we got to establish a, a work-rest cycle up here. So uh, we just can't wait around here There's just reading procedures all the time. Up to the burn, we've got to get them up here, put them and we got to uh, get them able to sleep. So uh, take that into consideration when you get ready to. Uh, uh, bed yeah, I know, Jim. Uh, we're very conscious of that. We uh he should be ready to go in about five minutes. That's all I can say. Uh, stand by.
2: For four and a half minutes, there were virtually no exchanges between the air and the ground. Then, the back door of Mission Control banged open once more, and a breathless engineer arrived with a large stack of checklists. From 7.30 p.m. Houston time until just past 9.15, The endless list was read up to the ship, and Swaggart copied it down. Finally, 15 hours before the scheduled splashdown, and just over 12 hours before the power-up was set to begin, the last command was sent, and Swaggart stowed his pen and shut his book.
1: Okay, Jack, it looks like uh, we've closed up the loose ends. uh, Amazingly enough, out of all that stuff, it looks like we only generated one question on the floor, and we'll... uh... Research that one. We'll even let you guess what it might have been. If you have any questions uh, after you mull it over, why, we're always available. Just ask us what you're thinking about. Okay, that's uh, that's what we're going to do. We're going to uh, wait till the limp people get theirs, and then uh, we're going to discuss it, coordinate things here, and uh, make sure that. So we don't have any interface problems, and uh, if we have any questions, we'll be coming back at you. Okay, uh, we did run the thing integrated, so uh, we think we've got all all the little surprises ironed out for you. I hope so, because tomorrow's examination time. Right.
2: A few hours later, as Jack Swigert was mulling over the command module power-up procedure, he could not get an image out of his head, and it was driving him crazy. In the nightmare scenario he kept imagining, he was in the command module, setting his switches and arming his pyros in preparation for the jettisoning of the service module. While down in the limb, Lovell and Hayes were poised in front of their windows, hoping to see the service module as it popped free and floated by. Swaggert could see himself in his center seat, counting down to the moment of jettison, and moving his hand with slow-motion, dream-like grace toward the switch marked Service Module Jettison. At the last second, however, just as his fingers grazed the control, he would lose his focus or become distracted, and his hand would drift a fraction of an inch to the left toward another switch, the one marked Limb Jettison. Deep in thought now, Swaggart could imagine the dull clunk as the latches that held the limb in place released their grip. He could sense the slight shaking as the lander popped free and feel the rushing of wind as the 5.5 pounds of atmospheric pressure in the command module rushed out through the tunnel and into space. Glancing down that newly opened hole, Swigert could see through the roof of the limb where Lovell and Hayes, set adrift in the ship that was supposed to be their lifeboat, glanced back at him In sudden horror and confusion. Now in the earliest hours of Friday morning, Swaggart could take it no more. He jumped up into the command module, found a piece of paper. On the paper he wrote in capital letters the word NO. Then he taped the paper to the limb jettison switch. He lifted the paper to make doubly sure it was the limb jettison switch and not the service module jettison switch. He had taped it to. Then he checked it one more time. Finally, he called Hayes, who confirmed that, yes, it was taped where it should be. Back in mission control, Deke Slayton was concerned about the cold temperatures his astronauts had been enduring. Along with everyone else in mission control, he had been monitoring Aquarius's power consumption since Monday, and had been growing increasingly confident about what he was seeing. With the ship pulling a mere 12 amps from its four batteries, a small surplus of electricity had been created. Slayton finally decided to ask the current flight director, Milt Wendler, if it might be possible to use a bit of that additional power to bring the limb online earlier. Wendler had his controllers make the calculations and concluded that it was possible. Capcom passed the good news up to the crew and they completed the half-hour limb power-up in just 21 minutes. As soon as Aquarius's systems came online, the crew could feel the temperature in the frigid cockpit begin to climb. And no sooner did the temperature start to climb than Lovell took a step to make sure it climbed even further. Grabbing his Attitude controller, now active again, He spun his ship in a half somersault so that the sun, which had been shining on the rear end of the service module, now fell across the face of the limb. Almost at once, a yellow-white slash of light flowed into the ship. Lovell turned his face up to it, closed his eyes, and smiled. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Anish, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 286 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 13, I Want My Power-Up Checklist Now. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. I want to give a big shout-out to all my listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed, and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. We're glad you're here. Are you looking for old episodes of the podcast? The first 112 episodes are available on the Archive. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on all podcatchers. Today, we salute our Vostok-level donors. There are 59 so far this year. Vostok donors contribute $10 or more during the calendar year. Thank you for your continued support, Vostok donors. My sources for this episode were Lost Moon by Jim Lovell, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, Flight by Chris Kraft, NASA Apollo 13 Technical Air-to-Ground Voice Transcription, The Internet Archive, and Wikipedia. Okay, next week I will be traveling, so there will be an encore episode. I'll try to pick out something appropriate. Then the following week, we will continue with Apollo 13 had just a few afterthoughts about this episode. wanted to make sure everyone understood that Swigert was having sort of a daydream about throwing the wrong switch and jettisoning the limb by accident with the rest of the crew still aboard. Of course, that didn't happen, but that is why he put the note on top of the switch that said no. Just in case he forgot when he was going through the command module power-up procedures that would occur in just a few hours. Can you imagine how frustrating it must have been for Lovell and crew when it took so long to get the power-up procedure read up to them? And all the last-minute delays like making copies after Mission Control said they were ready to read it up? I can understand Lovell's comment to Capcom about getting some rest for his crew, and I can understand his frustration and appreciate it. I did notice that Lovell's comments were not nearly as harsh as they were portrayed on the movie Apollo 13. He was in much better control of his voice than uh, Tom Hanks was in the movie. How about Deke Slayton convincing Capcom to let them warm up the limb ahead of schedule? Lovell's first question after they told him he could do it was, are you sure we're going to have enough power? And he was reassured by mission control that they would. And I know the crew really appreciated the early warm-up of the limb since they had been living in the refrigerator for so long. Okay, I have placed the audio and some pictures for this episode on the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Please check that out. We were pleased to receive several donations to support the podcast over the past week. Delphine E. from France donated at the Vostok level. Nigel H. from Australia donated at the Vostok level. Karsten E. from Denmark donated at the Vostok level and earned a moon emoji. Lawrence W. donated at the Vostok level and earned a moon emoji. Marcus S. from Germany donated at the Sputnik level and earned a moon emoji. And Andrew R. from Massachusetts increased his pledge on Patreon to the Orion level with Rocket Emoji. Unfortunately, we lost three Patreon donors over the past week, so we are back down to 216, with a goal of reaching 300 by the end of the year. Our total donors for 2019 have reached 239, with a goal of reaching 600 in 2019. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated in 2019, please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. You may have noticed that we don't have any commercials or ad revenue. We are entirely listener supported. To support the podcast, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange donate button to make a one-time donation, or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donor's page at the level they choose to donate. For the 239 of you who have already donated for 2019, I certainly appreciate it. This week we are giving away the SRH logo magnet to one of our lucky donors. Mrs. SRH randomly selected P.J. Ward. P.J. Ward, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. Okay, folks, that's all I have for this week. Remember, next week will be an Encore episode, and the following week we will continue with Apollo 13. So long for now.